I heard a, a talk from one of, another co-founder during like these fireside chats that you can uh, be a part of, especially in the Boston community. They have a great startup, you know, ecosystem. And one person, I think, asked the question, what's the role and responsibility of a CEO, you know, founder CEO? And their answer was to make sure that there is, you know, enough finances to keep the company going. And the response to, from the person who asked the question was like, so you're saying, you know, raising capital and doing all of that. They're like, no, if you heard the answer, it was, we need to make sure that the company's finance, like, at least has enough cash to keep going. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, my guest is co-founder and CEO of Uptime Health, Janesh Patel. Janesh, welcome. Coming live from Boston. Tell us, uh, tell us about yourself and your business. I appreciate it. Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Uptime Health. Uh, we work with healthcare facilities to help them manage their medical equipment and compliance efforts. Our goal was, how do you simplify a very complex process that you find in big healthcare systems? that are required for small healthcare facilities and give them a software that basically does the job for them. So they don't have to hire outside staff. So that's basically what we do at Uptime Health. And so this would be around all kinds of like medical equipment where they just need to track where it is and who's using it. And I guess there's like a chain of custody type of thing. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah. I, I always give a good analogy of a treat it like a car, uh, it needs maintenance, it needs service, it needs things done to it to make sure it's up and running at all times. So it provides quality care to patients. And right now, what happens is when you're in these smaller facilities, they don't understand all these nuances. They want to do them, but they don't understand what you have to do because medical equipment can be complex. Um, and not only that, but they have to track that they've done this. So let's say a regulator comes in and says, show me you've done your service events, you've done your calibrations, you've you know, made sure the equipment was nice and running before you used it on patients. They have to figure out ways to document and maintain all this. So our software basically automates that whole process for them. Oh, right on, right on. How, how did you even discover that this was, you know, a th I mean, there's so many places to improve and disrupt, you know, so I'm always interested in like the origin stories of the, you know, niche type of products that solve one problem that I would never have known existed. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh... It's basically, I, I was I was brought into this problem by my first job out of college. So I went to grad school as a biomedical engineer. Um, I did my undergrad in that as well. And after coming out of grad school, I got a job as a clinical engineering manager for the Seton Health System in Austin. 
Uh, it's one of the largest systems down there. But I also didn't know about this world until they're like, your job is to manage the medical equipment inside of all of our buildings. And they taught me about the rules or regulations required and, you know, how do you find the right technicians, service contracts, negotiate, you know, when does a device need to be repaired versus replaced, all of those things. And I also realized I had a pretty large budget and staff to do it. So I, I knew this wasn't an easy problem and it cost money. But at the same time, a lot of these smaller facilities started popping up these urgent cares, these surgical centers, all in your local communities. And I re that's when I started saying, well, how are they doing it? You know, I have millions of dollars in my budget. I have a team of 20 plus technicians here. I have, you know, software, all the works, you know, just to make sure that I can do my job well. But these guys who are smaller have the same responsibilities, but less manpower and less money. So it was, it was just curious to me. So what, what were they doing? I'm fortunate enough that I have medical professionals in my family. So I went to go ask them who work at some of these smaller facilities. And I, I learned that they really don't know that much about what they're doing. A lot of times they would use outside vendors and hope that they do the job correctly. They use pieces of paper and you know logs to document what they're doing internally. It's very inefficient. And they also don't know a better way. And as I started seeing this world grow, like urgent cares are popping up left and right. Um, I was began to get more and more curious as to how they do this at scale. And that's where I realized, well, everything right now is manual and completely archaic in how it's structured. If I provided a software version of myself and my team, this could help take away some of those administrative burdens and time and give it back to the healthcare providers and allow them to go see more patients. So that was the, the reason I wanted to do this. And once I started, I interviewed a few Again, family, friends, and other individuals saying, if I built this, would this save you time? And as we started hearing more yeses, that's when it made sense to say, okay, let's, we need to build this thing. Yeah, that customer discovery process, right, is huge. You know, I think it's so easy to look at an archaic old process and say, oh, I could build a beautiful SaaS mobile, you know, something, something to to solve this. But you, you know, have to sit in the seat and, you know, really listen to the person who might use the thing because it's often not that you didn't solve the problem well, but you didn't solve it their way or, you know, there's adoption and of course, you know, getting people to, to pay for it. So you might make, you know, in your case, a healthcare provider very happy, uh, but that's not the person who buys and pays the bill even, you know, so right. all kinds of procurement stuff. I mean, you uncovered a need then like what else happened to start making money from it because i think that's totally different and people miss that oh yeah no i mean you hit it on the head the the user's not always the buyer and what you have to do is convince the buyer that it's there's enough benefit for them as well as the end user that it's going to make a lot of sense and so well, after we did this customer discovery which was the most important part and learning that we were actually solving a real need then we built like a very very terrible mvp with like a minimum viable product and the biggest goal was to show like, here's the physical or, you know, software version of what we were talking about. If I were able to solve this, here's at least a demonstration of what it could be. And, you know, it didn't really work. It would break every, you know, other day it felt like. And, but the biggest goal is I was able to demo it and say, you know, and kind of poke around and avoid any of the bugs that I knew existed while I demoed it and basically told them, 
like here's what it could be and here's how it could like uh, actually work in real time and how much simpler it can all make your lives and once you started hearing okay yeah i would like to actually demo or use that that's when we decided okay we need to actually build a, a usable product we can't put anyone on this tool they would they would hate it so much then we would get you know, lambasted across the, across the industry saying, don't use these guys. And so what we told them was, okay, give us some time. We'd like to put you in our beta program where you're going to be one of the first people to use this new tool. Like you had to be transparent at that moment because if you didn't manage expectations, then we would set ourselves up for failure. So we basically told them like in, in full transparency, you are one of the first group of users that we want to use this product and build it out with you on your behalf. So we phrased it in a way that made it feel like it was beneficial to them and they got to be innovative. Uh, you got to remember the people we're talking to, they're not usually the innovators of the world. Like they're, you know, they have great successful jobs and that's all they do, but entrepreneurship really isn't in their backbone. So if you let them be part of your entrepreneurial journey, they feel a little bit of excitement too. They say, oh, I get to build something with this company and it's going to benefit me at the end of the day. And so if you can get enough of those people to get excited, then you have a good real base of people that you can actually build and iterate and you will fail. Like you will have bugs and hiccups along the way, but they're willing to be patient because you've told them this is how it's going to be for the next four months or so. So after we get all that going, then we had a real minimum viable product that actually worked for people. And we started bringing them on board and saying, okay, how about you guys use this for a good six months? In the meantime, we're going to go find people to actually pay for this. But since you built it for us and with us, here's your benefit. Uh, you'll have it free for the next six months and can you'll probably break it and find new things that we're not aware of just yet. But now we had a product that was sellable in the market. The next thing is how do you price it? Because, <laughs> you know, we really don't also know, can't quantify the pain just yet is mainly because there's no other competitors for what we're doing. We're replacing paper. So the cost of paper and ink is probably the only thing we could benchmark cost against. And there was no existing budget line item. And a time, right? Against people. So you're, but you don't want to get in the, oh, hey, we're, would you like to use this thing that's going to replace you? You're in that classic sort of circle of, you know, like the user, wait, uh, but, you know, so we're your friend, not your enemy, right? So. Oh, exactly. You know, you're 100% right. That's why it's like, how do you phrase this value in a way that makes sense to everybody, especially as it's so new? But the one other thing I learned along the way, which I didn't expect, which was there's no existing budget line item for this. So because it used to be paper and ink that was in the office supply budget, and that's where this money came from. Um, or if it was administrative time, it came from the operations budget for employee labor and payroll. But we were coming in with a software product. And that didn't have some kind of line item or tools and resources associated with it. So they didn't know where to pull resources from and give it to us and since we're inventing a line item that's what took the most time which was we can't be too big or too much that it creates a whole headache for finance and they're the ones that killed the deal or it creates a whole headache for the person who has the tiniest budget and they right now use it for coffee for their employees and they're not going to take that away and so we had to we had to really start slow we we started basically with the cheapest we could afford to keep our product alive and then slowly ratcheted up as we got more people using it, as we started seeing they were more and more engaged with our tool, then we're like, okay, the fact that these guys closed out a thousand compliance tasks means that they really care about this thing. And if we were to rip it away from them, which we wouldn't do, but 
how much pain would that feel in their mind and how much would they be willing to pay for us to not rip it away from them? <laughs> and so like, right. that's how we started quantifying the pricing and yeah. it's, it's a lot of art versus science to start, especially for a brand new product, but that's how we started in some kind of category, right? Like you're basically educating people and figuring out how to price. And so timeline for this was about three years concept to deployment then, or where are you at? So we went concept to deployment. So going back to that minimum viable deployment, we did that in about 11 months. And then after we started getting our first paying clients and listening to our clients even more. So what are the other things that they associate with us or like, again, we didn't understand how they lived and breathed until they started using our tool and you know what it meant to them. But a lot of people in our world started bucketing other aspects of their day-to-day into this one world that they called compliance. So coming from a big health system, medical equipment management was its own thing. Like it was so big, it could be its own thing standalone. But for these smaller groups, it was, just a fraction of a bigger thing in their minds because it wasn't that big. It was just, I do this and I do these other compliance efforts and I do this. And one person kind of owns that job responsibility. And so now we realized who we were solving the problem for and all the other things that they mentally associated as the same problem space. And we started building new features for that. Um, So we're saying, okay, you also want to make sure that not only are you maintaining your vitals monitor like in the correct way but you're also doing these auxiliary events such as flushing your sterilizer each every two weeks or sending out the spore sample to make sure the sterilizer is you know running correctly every you know couple weeks or even just wiping down the the table to make sure it was sanitized in the mornings like tracking and completing all of that that to them was all part of this bucket and that's where we started saying we need more features that solve this person's everyday week, month problem. So that's where we started really building a, a bigger product suite that is resonating with a lot more of the industry today. So that took about another six months to get done. So I'd say the product that we are really selling and, you know, this holistic tool, about a year and a half to from concept all the way now into sellable product. Which is short really i mean you know it's surprisingly short which leads me to i i know the answer to this already but this is not your first rodeo so you know talk about talk about founder lessons learned you know along the path i know you've at least done one other significant startup and probably some before that that you know don't make the list so (laughs) yeah no i I, yeah tell the story if you what would you learn over that because i think that the second, third, fourth, like they get, I'm not going to say they get easier. They get to be maybe less of a beat down and you don't make the same mistakes at least. So, Yeah, I know. Agreed. So my first startup, a uh, different industry, different space, but it was a hardware software play. Um, and we failed a ton and we learned a lot of lessons there because this was my first thing that was from ground zero, first time entrepreneur. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know why I stopped taking a salary to come do this. Um, I don't know how to approach customers. I remember the first time where we actually got someone to buy one of our devices and they were like, can you issue, can you send us the PO? And I was like, what is that? Like, PO. <laughs> or at least from, at least from the vendors aspect, I used to receive the PO, but like, I wasn't understanding like what's right, the process right. in the accounting world to make mm-hmm. sure that this makes sense. And so I remember Googling yeah. 
PO template, you know, <laughs> going and grabbing my logo, throwing it on top, saving as PDF so it looked like mine and shooting from like out. a word like a word file from like 2003 or something that's on some yeah. website. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, I got the PO, but what about the W9? I'm like, oh yeah, sorry. I thought I attached that, but I didn't even know like I they needed to set me up as a vendor in their system. So I went back and again Googled what is a W9? Like, and so the thing is <laughs> there's a lot of those micro things that I had teed up that I knew that I needed in this next world and uh, save me time headache. That way, when I talk to people for the first time, like in this newer startup, it was easier for me to be like, oh, what's your process? Do you need a PO from us? Do you need us to set up a vendor account? And it made us seem bigger than they actually were. Because <laughs> when you speak like that, it sounds like this is not your first rodeo for your existing product. And it makes it sound like, oh, these guys have, you know, they know exactly how to do this. They're a solid, reputable, big company. Uh, even though you might be our second client, they don't know that. Uh, so I'd say the other things that we learned in our first startup was how to do things cheaply. Uh, we were throwing some money at problems before, but we then started shifting our thinking as to how can we solve this with $0? Or what is the cheapest way to get to the essence of the problem before we spend money on it? And we never thought about it in that way you know, early on in our first startup. So after we started seeing questions come back from clients or we'd like this new feature we'd start doing is trying to boil down like why are you asking for this is it because this is inherently hard to use or you need this because it solves some other problem and once we get to that essence then what we started doing is basically creating like photoshop mock-ups of if we did this is that what you're asking for because the one thing that we did wrong in our first startup is we were building solutions that we thought were the problems. But after we sent a solution and spent time doing it, money, they're like, oh, that didn't really solve my problem. And we're like, well, what is your problem? And so we've wasted time, money, and energy. Uh, so getting to that quicker and doing it almost for free allowed us to almost be right the first time more often than not uh, with the second startup. So that's, I think, how we expedited the timelines than we wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Were you able to, is it more about the process that you learned to do things more smoothly there? Or were you actually able to, you know, pre-identify, you know, like potholes, like don't do that thing because it's <laughs> going to end up, you know, like breaking my axle, you know, is it, is it that visceral? I think there are moments that it is that visceral, but there are other moments that's just more process driven. Cause a lot of the time I feel like you spend as a first time founder is understanding process and efficiency. And cause you're doing everything, you're wearing 20 hats. So the smaller you can make those hats, you know, early on, the easier it is to wear the other ones and you can focus all your time and energy there versus being a steward or being a student of all 10 at the very beginning. Now you have to be a student of four. So I think just, the ability to focus makes your life easier and more efficient. I will say, because I'm not the software developer on our team, uh, I'm more, you know, the person with the industry knowledge, my co-founder and CTO, he's the one that can identify software potholes way ahead of time. And he's, you know, planning in advance because he's been through these cycles and he started his own company. So he's also been a second, you know, third or fourth time founder. So I think he's the, ability, he's the one that's able to find, Shinesh, we can't do it this way because this will cause this problem if we scale to this number of clients. And it's like, ah, okay, so let's not do it that way. Even if it takes another five days or a week of dev effort to do it right, I know that the pain to fix it later on is way worse. Uh, I'd say so he's the one that finds those like 
pinpointed problem potholes. Right, right. And there's there's so many sort of I guess matching moments with with business too. Having been around, you know, a lot of software dev and way long ago I was a developer, you know, so I remember enough that to cause problems. And you know, there's so many things that that really can be brought along to to business. You know, like proper documentation. <laughs> It really matters, you know, comment your code, comment your business. You know, I mean, it really makes a huge difference there. I don't know if you've seen this, but it, it, I'm constantly amazed in my businesses with with my business, my staff, my clients, every like definitions of very common words, almost like you need a glossary, you know, like and, and it's it's the common ones that will shoot you in the foot every time. You know, so when you say, you know, I don't know, equipment, project you know, uh, PO, right? Some of those things, like they mean different things to different people. And it's the easy ones that you take for granted. You know, and I, I, if there's one pothole, it's like, just for God's sake, let's all make a glossary. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that. But we we did that early on. And actually, my co-founder was the one that identified that we were having issues here. Because I would say one thing, because I'm from the industry. So I had a different lingo. And he would hear another thing. And he's like, okay, just so you know what this means in our software, like we call it this and you're calling it this. So if you ever ask one of our other dev guys to do this one thing, he might not know what you're saying because it's not what it is in the, in the actual code base or how we've identified it. And so we basically had to like tell everyone, okay, this is what a feature is. This is what an enhancement is. This is what a bug is. So when you say I have a bug or I have an enhancement, like here's how we're going to identify it on the software side. When it comes to talking to the clients, like I said, we call it medical equipment management. They call it logs management. And so like going now to the sales and marketing team, it's like, okay, here's how our clients talk about these things. And here's what it means to us in terms of how we run our business. But setting yeah. that foundation early allows you to scale your team to the same level really quickly. That's gosh, if you go to engineering and DevOps <laughs> and you talk about logs management, you are going to get a very different answer. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So that's why, you know, we have to be the distiller of information in a coded language that makes sense for the rest of our team. Yeah, right. And I mean, it takes that's from a CEO standpoint, like so much of that visioning, missioning, vocabulary, like that stuff is really where you would spend a lot of time. And I would guess on business development, right? Are you a sales oriented CEO? Yeah, well, I had to be. So I'll tell you another quick learned lesson that we had. So when we first started off, it was me and I needed to find a co-founder because I know how important that is to start any company. And for any of your listeners that don't don't realize how important that is, like at least if you're trying to go out for investment, one thing it signals to an investor is you're able to convince somebody else to give up whatever they're doing to believe in your vision, mission in business. Because uh, that's what a co-founder is ultimately. And uh, so we had myself, who was the industry side. And I was an engineer by background. Um, and we had my... CTO, who he's he's been CTOs of you know several companies, and he comes from the technology side. But neither of us had a sales background. In my first startup, I did sales. Don't get me wrong, but it wasn't anything I was like, yeah, this is what I'm amazing at. It was just like something that came along with the rest of the with the rest of the job. And we went out and ser searching for another third co-founder who has a sales background. But this was a little later in the life of the business because we didn't again. We didn't know what we didn't know. We were six months into our uh, early discovery phases and knowledge phases. And we're like, well, we, we know that both of us don't know how to sell like healthcare software, which I already knew healthcare was a different beast. And my other company was B2C. 
So it's easier to pick up sales there, but B2B SaaS in healthcare are like a a beast that, you know, we didn't want to touch. So we're like, let's go find someone with that experience. So we did, but at the same time, his B2B SaaS experience, and ultimately, you know, he did a lot of great things for us. Uh, but it was also a learning curve for him early on uh, because we didn't realize how nuanced even that meant. Like he was big with big enterprise SaaS and we were selling to SMB. Like, so that alone made a difference in how do you approach, approach a client and how long do you take to go from combo to close and what's the expected life cycle. So all of these things we realized, well, in fact, if we had just done a lot of the the sales efforts early on, we would probably be in the same spot, whether you know, co-founder or not, he gave us a lot of great knowledge, but I ended up having to be now a sales oriented co-founder. I'm doing a lot better at it, but it wasn't in my, in my background or expertise ahead of time. Yeah, man, that happens so much. I mean, the core of my business is working around, you know, founders that you reach that point where you either have to figure out a different solution for that seat, or you just have to do it. And if you're just going to do it, you really don't get to be the CEO that you want to be. I mean, business development and sales is nearly all consuming, no matter how you staff it. (laughs) It's just, it's the thing. And then if you're managing revenue and all that, you know, what are you not managing? And I think that that critical sort of fork in the road there is a very difficult place to hire for or to solve for if you hit it and you aren't ready for that. Yeah. And I think it's more of the the early, the early hires are the key hires. And it's, I mean, you hear it, but to see it in practice is a whole different thing. Like, and so from now what we're doing is, although I'm a sales oriented CEO at the moment, we're finding what are the things that I can start taking off my plate, like the top of the funnel marketing efforts. That's easily, now that I understand enough of it, I can bucket around a job description and find someone who can tackle that one aspect of the day. And now that's off. So that's one level off my shoulders. Now it's the, all right, someone who can de- like take that lead and demo it effectively and sell that and put that into a close. Now that I've done that a number of times, I can teach somebody else how to do it. So I can hire for that specific role and take that off my plate. So now I have someone who's top of the funnel and then executing on the funnel. And now, you know, we just hired an ops person who's now taking that sale and building out the client experience, making sure that they're onboarded successfully and they're good with the tool. So that's now starting to get off my plate. But I'm still doing all three jobs, but less and less of each. And you become more and more of a documenter and a coach and an advisor and a consultant. And you realize how much of that stuff only lives in your head. And how do you take that tacit knowledge and experience and write it down, record it, advise on it it is such a different world to become that leader of that thing and not get to be the doer yeah i agree but it feels good when you get to that point and you start doing it and you hire that person who you see take that step from they take the lead that's now coming from the marketing team and they were able to call them on their own without you coaching them anymore you know do the demo or set up the demo and do a demo without you coaching them anymore And then actually send a contract and have it signed without you seeing it. And all you see is like the notification that says this contract's been signed. (laughs) It's like in that moment, you feel probably the most amount of joy as a, as a founder than ever. Cause you're like, I created a repeatable process for somebody else. 
I remember the first time I had that that founder moment of like things are happening and I'm not doing them. <laughs> it was like shocking. Like I yeah. I think I could take a breath here. <laughs> you know? so, that's of course, your, eventually there's goal. a big old mistake that you need to deal with. But you know, there's there's that too. So. <laughs> I think that's the other thing is empower your team to feel good about mistakes. Like not feel good that they did it, but feel okay that it happened because. If they if they know that you as a co-founder or a founder have like failed or you know made mistakes yourself, then it gives them some kind of breathing room. Because one thing I did learn is, especially with my first uh, startup and even in this one, is if people don't feel empowered or don't feel that a little bit of risk tolerance to make the mistake and it's going to be okay, then they're going to be so focused and so like narrow in what they accomplish and they're going to ask your help for every small thing on top of that because they don't want to make that mistake uh, you know without your approval and it slows things down at the end of the day so if you empower them be like it's okay to learn that's how we put it like meaning you do something that you thought was for the benefit of the company but it ultimately you know we saw this break over here because of it that's fine like we'll fix it we'll handle it like and we will learn from it but like we'll coach ourselves on why we won't do it again but that's about it uh you don't make them feel bad or feel like how you know how could you do this unless it's maybe a company debt sentence okay i can see that but like if it's these small micro things it's easier to let them fail and show them that it's okay because we go way faster because of it and at a small company everyone's risky inherently because everyone's not an expert you don't have those niche niche knowledge experts in every aspect so you have to give everyone the same kind of flexibility you give yourself. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, over time in your founder journey, I've noticed to be true, it's like the, the number of zeros that I'm comfortable selling goes up and the number of zeros that my mistakes have attached to them seems to go down, you know, so we're looking for <laughs> not five and six digit errors again, but at least at least quite a fair number of, of you know, sort of four digit <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that, and that's, that's the goal. I mean, you said it perfectly right there. You want to be able to, uh, you know, take, take away from something that like, Hey, we've done well enough that the fact that I just blew up $6,000, uh, is, is not detrimental to our, to our world. It still sucks. And <laughs> let's yeah. not do it again. <laughs> yeah. 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 No matter how small the stake, we'll always correct it. But yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's not gonna, if it's not going to kill the company, use it as a learning moment more than a, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, punishing moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, lo I love that. So what's next, you know, kind of in your journey, do you, do you think about, do you come into a business and kind of go, you know, exit plan or, you know, oh, I'm going to do this forever. Or I'm not sure. You know, I think a lot of people don't know how to plan their future, you know, as a, as a founder. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think that answer changes more often than you'd probably like it to change as you go through the journey of building a company at first you know you might be i'm building this to sell this for tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars you know in five years and then you might start falling in love with it in terms of no i i'm loving how much my clients love the tool i'm loving the building of the team i'm loving all these improvements to the industry that we're making and i want to continue to do this uh but then you know you get burnt out and you're like, I can't wait to sell this. So it's like, at the end of the day, I think you go through so many ebbs and flows that having an answer like right now is really tough. But I'd say at the moment, obviously our goal is to build a 
a company that's self-sustaining because we're still, you know, venture backed at the moment, uh, self-sustaining, growing on its own, really making improvements. And if we find the right acquirer, that's really going to continue the mission we're, we're going on. And they can further that mission tenfold because of maybe their size, their reach, uh, whatever they have with them, then it can make sense. And I'm okay with that. But if we can't find that acquirer, that's not going to further the mission that we as a team have fallen in love with, then it's not going to happen. So that's kind of how I've been approaching it, you know, more recently. And it speaks to having taken money from people that follow your vision, you know, like the smart investor who matches where you want to be. And that's a big, big lesson. You know, anybody's money you take, you know, sort of, if they're not becoming your boss, they are becoming, you know, a major contributor to the, the place that that business is going. And there's different types of, of money and investors for different types of businesses, depending on the vision that you have. So, you know, have those intelligent long form conversations because that, that fit is just as important as anybody that you would hire uh, any check that you take, you know, and client investor or otherwise, you know, really sort of has a bearing on, on the culture. No, you're right. I think it's a, I, I mean, obviously my first and foremost goal is to make money for the people who believe in this and put money in the company. So that's, that's an, that's a no brainer. And if that is exit, then, and everyone's happy with, you know, whatever we're getting and the company that's going to take us over, that's probably what it's going to be. But at the same time, I think our investors see the bigger mission that what we're trying to accomplish and they're wanting someone to succeed in that mission at the same time. Yeah. And look, if you have a business that's cash flow positive and revenue is driving the ship, you have optionality, then you don't get forced into any situation. So I think another lesson for every founder is yeah, revenue matters a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that gives you the space to really be able to, you know, kind of control your own destiny. You know, so I had a, I heard a, a talk from one of another co-founder during like these fireside chats that you can uh, be a part of, especially in the boss community. They have a great startup, you know, ecosystem. And one person I think asked the question, what's the role and responsibility of a CEO, you know, founder CEO. And their answer was to make sure that there is, you know, enough finances to keep the company going. And the response to, from the person who asked the question was like, so you're saying, you know, raising capital and doing all of that. They're like, no, if you heard the answer, it was, we need to make sure that the company's finance, like at least has enough cash to keep going. If that is fundraising, cause you're not cash flow positive at the moment, that's one, th that's one solution to your problem. The other one is selling more product. So you're self-financing the company through your sales. They're like, whatever that strategy is, it's the CEO's job to figure that out and get it done. Um, so is it pushing sales, 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 sales? Because that's ultimately how the cash is coming in the company. Or is it fundraise, 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 fundraise until that can happen? Uh, I thought that was a clever answer because I've never heard it phrased that way before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it begs us all to look back and relearn the cash flow statement because yeah. we tend to look a lot at pro forma PL in in all of our businesses you know we're all obsessed with that and maybe you look a little bit at that balance sheet make sure we're not upside down but the reality is that the cash flow statement tells you you know money in and money out and what is the source and use of it I and mean, that is a tremendous way to look at your business as a founder just just like cash is everything you know and so you don't just look at your bank account balance you you really got to think about the movement. And I've seen tons of founders get screwed on timing. And it's like, well, we've got a ton of AR here, you know, but that's not money. I can't pay my bills with it. So yeah, the financing is, 
is huge. And I recommend that everybody, you know, spend some time with a, at least an interim CFO right, to figure some of that stuff out. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo you on cash flow. That cash flow statement is, if you're not looking at that once every week or two, then, you know, you hopefully you're in a really good position where you don't have to look at it. You know, if you have a job where you're getting paid enough that you never see the money hit the bank, you're just living your life. That's where you want to be as a company at the same time. If you don't need to reconcile cash every day, God bless you. Yeah. yeah. Right? And then <laughs> if it's not every week, that's that's good too. You know, and then when you get to like your monthly cash flow reconciliation, you're good to go. You know, <laughs> I think that's a really nice place to be. So yeah. Well, uh, Janesh, awesome stuff, man. Thank you, you know, for hanging out. Really, really cogent advice and experience. And so I love it. Uh, I'll give you a second to put on your futurist hat. Where where are things going for you and and the company? Yeah, I think, you know, we're headed in a good direction. We're starting to really get accepted by the regulatory bodies who are doing the compliance checking for the facilities that work at as a good or best practice tool. And in my mind, that is where you want to be. We're the guys who are regulating our clients are saying that's a really good way to be <laughs> managing your business. Uh, so our goal in the next, you know, call it 12 months is we want to bring on another thousand facilities to our platform. Uh, we want to get to a point where we're going to go raise out our Series A, and you know, start building out our team. So that's that's the near future for us. Awesome. Well, I know you do mentoring and you know startup stuff, like you said, around the community. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you that way, uh, where's the best place to do it? Sure, shoot me an email. Uh, it's Janesh at uptimehealth.com. So that's J I N E S H at U P T I M E H E A L T H dot com. Of course, if there's anybody listening that owns a, a small medical facility, you should be an Uptime Health customer. I'm not Agreed. sure if that fits the audience <laughs> profile. <laughs> yeah, thanks for hanging it. out, man. Love the time. Right, thanks, Ledge. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.